Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Mark Godsey, a former federal prosecutor who's currently a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati College of Law. Professor Godsey is the co-founder and director of the Ohio Innocence Project, which is one of the most active and successful innocent projects in the country. He's also the author of Blind Injustice, a former prosecutor exposes the psychology and politics of wrongful conviction. Mark Godsey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. You know, I thought a good place to start would be if you could tell us a little bit about the Ohio Innocence Project, kind of when it started, why you started it, and you know, just generally uh, uh, what it does. Yeah, so the Ohio Innocence Project is based at the University of Cincinnati College of Law. It's the only innocence project in the state of Ohio. And um, really, the innocence movement started in the early 90s with the advent of DNA testing. And the first one was in New York at Cardoza Law School. And the goal is for law professors, law students to look into claims of people in prison who say, look, I was wrongfully convicted. I've been here for 20 years. I didn't do this. And reinvestigate the case, often using DNA testing and new technologies. And um, the first one in New York was very successful. And they've spread across the country and almost every state now has a project. We started ours in 2003. So we've been around about 16 years. So far, we've freed 28 people on grounds of innocence who together served more than 525 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. And nationally, there's been, I think, more than 2,300 in that time period, since the early 90s now, freed through Innocence Project and people doing similar work. Um, so in a nutshell, it's about getting innocent people out of prison and then also reforming the system to make it more accurate going forward. And, and so in addition to doing this, you wrote a book, and, and I wanted to ask you about that too. So what, uh, what prompted you to, to write Blind Injustice? Well, really, it was my experiences, and I think they mirror um, what other people need to go through, particularly prosecutors and law enforcement, um, if we're going to have the kind of reforms necessary. <clears throat> so my background is I was a prosecutor uh, for many years, and um, I went to a different law school as a professor, not the not University of Cincinnati, first. And, and at that school, they had an innocence project, and the professor who ran it was on sabbatical that year. So I had this criminal investigation background as a prosecutor. So the dean was sort of like, you're going you're gonna to do this. And as a prosecutor, I was really sort of skeptical. And I thought, you know, this is a bunch of BS. You know, innocent people in prison, come on, give me a break. And I went to the first meeting with the students. They'd just been back from a prison visit. They were talking about how they're convinced this guy's innocent. And I remember just sitting there sort of doing internal eye rolls. Um, but DNA testing ended up proving that guy innocent. And so it was a huge eye-opening experience for me. I actually talk about that in the first chapter. The first chapter is called Eye Opener. Um, and throughout that year, just, you know, in essence, being forced to work on the project, I went through a gradual conversion where I started to realize that there's a lot of flaws in the system. And we're essentially operating our, our criminal justice system based on an understanding of the human mind and human psychology from the 1800s or the 1950s at best. And the, the criminal justice system is sort of in a silo. Yeah. All these problems are contributing to wrongful convictions. And so by the end of the year, I'd become a firm believer that we need some reform. And so I, I got a new job at the University of Cincinnati and I co-founded the project here. So I, I've just been moving forward ever since. So my book was to describe my experiences and how I look back at my time as a prosecutor very differently than I did at the time and to talk about some of the reforms that are necessary. 
you know, I think a lot of folks maybe would think, well, well, prosecutors just are sort of going to assume that everyone is guilty of everything, uh, essentially. And you know, one of the things we try to focus on the show is, is to assume that people don't necessarily have bad motives out of the gate, but that there are certain things, maybe maybe uh, framing mindsets, that sort of thing, that, that sort of Pre, that could sort of move them in a certain direction. And, and as a former prosecutor, it seems to me you're in a unique position to talk about, to speak to what sort of things maybe that go through a prosecutor's mind that might lead them to wrongfully convict somebody. Because obviously, you know, I think the assumption that, well, I just want to put people in jail. I don't care if they're guilty or not. That's, that's pretty ridiculous, or at least I would hope so. Right. And I think a lot of people think that the prosecutors that, you know, have cases that result in wrong conviction, well, that, you know, I'll see comments on social media, that person should, that prosecutor should go to jail. And it's like, well, I understand the mentality. I mean, it, and it's a very complicated thing. Most of the time when a wrongful conviction occurs, it's not anybody intentionally trying to put an innocent person in prison. We've got a few examples of that. You've got some bad eggs everywhere, even, you know, no matter what line of work you're in, there's some, some bad cops and some bad prosecutors, but most of these injustices and most of the wrongful convictions occur from people who are trying to do a good job. And really, it's more the system, the lack of training, um, the fact that the procedures for investigating and identifying the right person are not up to, to par with modern understanding of psychology and how, for example, eyewitness identification, eyewitnesses should be treated and talked to and interviewed. Um, and then the second thing is that, you know, and I, I realize this as a prosecutor, you know, particularly when you have elected judges and elected prosecutors, it, it, it's very much a team mentality and you look into it and you come to the job thinking, you know, I'm going to get the bad guys and I feel good about that. And you should feel good about that. Um, but in many cases, the culture of the office starts to become very, I don't know if I call it macho or just sort of cowboy of like, you know, it can go too far where an arrogance sets in that everyone you're looking at is guilty. Um, you're not really open-minded to claims of, of possible innocence and everybody in the office sort of feeds off each other and it becomes this culture of, um, of not being as careful as you can be because we're far too certain that we're right. Um, whereas if prosecutors and police officers were trained to sort of be more objective and not go with their first hunch and be more careful, not jump to conclusions, a lot of these miscarriages of justice would be prevented. And I would guess it's not just psychological things, but but probably also the incentive structure in that particular world that would more than likely reward that sort of behavior, right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, I just I posted on, on the Blind Injustice Facebook page yesterday. It came out that in Oklahoma, the crime lab, you know, the CSI people, um, they get funding depending on how many convictions they get. Um, and so there's a, you know, human beings are inherently biased. It's not like they set out and go, well, let's go convict a bunch of innocent people so we can increase our funding but that creates an inherent incentive, an inherent bias that they're not even necessarily aware of um, that moves them toward that team of, yeah, let's, you know, let's get these convictions. These guys are clearly guilty. Um, and, you know, in prosecutor's offices, you know, I went in as a young person a few years out of law school, and I was very ambitious. And I wanted to get the big cases in the newspaper, and I wanted to win the cases, and I wanted to be thought of as the guy who could pull a rabbit out of the hat, win the tough cases, and convince the jury. Um, because it makes you look good in your office, it leads to promotions, and you you, you want to be the rock star in court. Um, that's human nature, and so it becomes very very competitive. And when you have a competitive environment like that, it becomes more about just winning 
and you see examples of that all across the country. I mean, like even in Hamilton County, there's a, a trophy of a donkey they call it like the ass donkey. And if you lose a case, um, it has to sit on your desk until the next person loses. Wow. Um, and you know, if you in my office, if you lost a couple cases, you, people started questioning how good you were. Um, and so the personal incentive of of doing a good of being the best prosecutor and being the, the hard ass, so to speak, um, and the cowboy who can win all the cases is, is starts to set in. Right. So, so you sort of you, you sort of push that envelope as far as you you can, and sometimes the lines can, I'm sure, get get pretty blurred there at the edges. Yeah, I mean, human beings, everybody suffers from confirmation bias. So, if you have a job where you're convinced every case that's brought to you, the person is guilty, and your job is just to finish it through and get the conviction, you're not setting out to convict an innocent person. In the rare case where somebody you're looking at, the file your hand is actually innocent, your mind just becomes closed. You just start going through the motions and the routine of I'm going to nail this guy, and you know, you, you, the way your brain filters information, if evidence of innocence comes forward, there's a way to spin it. You know, oh, that can't be true because of this. That's just human nature. And when prosecutors aren't taught to, to fight that human nature and to, to remain open-minded and try to be more objective, at least to these miscarriages of justice, now there's thousands of them. We know that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned confirmation bias. And one of the things I really liked about the book is uh, you mentioned confirmation bias a lot as well as cognitive dissonance and those are things i i talk about them in my classes all the time and we talk about them on the show because they're they're super important and i was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about how you see those things specifically playing a role in these you know many miscarriages of justice well confirmation bias is something that everyone suffers from and particularly when you have a lot of power like those in the, in the prosecutor's office and the police officers um they really can affect people's lives. And there's an incentive to do a good job and you want to solve your cases, confirmation bias naturally sets in. And I'll just give one example of how it affects one area of the criminal justice system. I think if you can understand that example, then it's very easy to understand how it, how it contaminates the other part of the criminal justice system. So, you know, I think most people think of our CSI um, scientists, the ones that, you know, look at the muddy shoe print next to the dead body and then compare it to the defendant's shoe print, say, is this a match? Um, they think of them as you know very neutral. Yeah. They're these, these scientists that have fancy degrees. They don't, you know, it's just the facts, ma'am, just the science. Right. Um, but faulty forensics, you know, somebody taking the stand from a forensic department and testifying that there was a match, you know, his teeth mark matched the bite mark in the dead body, his shoe matches the, the shoe in the snow, et cetera, et cetera. That's one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction. I mean, I think the second leading cause where somebody gave bad forensic testimony that there was a match when there wasn't. And so social scientists started studying this, and, and ATL Drawer is a psychologist out of London studied confirmation bias, and to him, the, the problem was very easy, um, and he could see from his research how confirmation of bias would, would affect forensics. So he did this study where he went to leading fingerprint experts from around the world, and he said, hey, I've got a case where years ago, decades ago, a fingerprint expert testified that it was the defendant on trial, his fingerprint matched the fingerprint on the bloody knife. So that was very damning evidence that caused the conviction. But we now know through DNA testing that the guy was completely innocent, that somebody else did it, and the fingerprint expert made a mistake. Can you look at these two fingerprints from this old case and see where the expert went wrong, where the discrepancies are between the two fingerprints where he should have made him call it a non-match? Lo and behold, though, unbeknownst to the experts, that Intel Jor had gone into their own personal court files where they had testified years earlier in a case and called it a match and got somebody to be convicted <laughs> and tricked them. Very good. What do you think the percentage of experts that change their opinion when they were now given a fingerprint expert said this is from a, a fingerprint pair and said this is from a case where there was a wrongful conviction? 
Well, yeah, I don't want to hazard a guess. I bet it's going to be pretty high. What was it? Yeah, 80%. Whoa, I, I wouldn't have guessed that. I was going to say 80%. Maybe I mean, it shows you wow. how subjective this is. And, 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 and they're not doing this on purpose, but yeah. I mean, we now understand how the human mind works. It works with filters and what are called heuristics, which are hardwired shortcuts. If you're told an answer in advance, like, you know, we expect this fingerprint to match, this is our suspect. It literally affects what the human mind sees because you filter out things you don't need to see. And I've, in my book, I've got a variety of experiments that show this. Um, and so when, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I would hand the fingerprints over and I'd say, hey, we know this guy did it. All we need you to do is confirm the fingerprints match. Right. We now know that when you do that, you're going to miss some discrepancies sometimes that actually the fingerprints don't match, but you only look for the parts that look similar and your mind literally doesn't see the parts that are dissimilar. Um, and this, is, this experiment from Drawer has been uh, repeated in a variety of forensics and again, shows again and again how confirmation bias changes the system. Now, in response to that, wouldn't some people maybe say, okay, sure, but that's the whole point of having an adversarial system, and then we would expect the defense to essentially say, well, here's where the fingerprints don't match up, and so it should all come out in the wash. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, except for two things. First of all, by the time that you get to that point, the person's been arrested and in prison for sometimes a year waiting for trial. Right. Um, secondly, um, it's a myth that defendants have the same resources as prosecutors. So, it, it, you know, the defense attorney has to go in and say, I need funds for an expert. I need funds for an investigator. I need this and that. The state has all those things built in. Um, it's often not the case that those are granted. And as a defense attorney, if you're practicing in that county, you can't go in and ask that for every single case. I mean, the judges are going to start not taking you seriously. Um, and so, and you have, you have defense attorneys who suffer from this too, who get convinced early on that an innocent person's guilty. I mean, some of these cases we look into where the end up, the person ends up being exonerated. The defense attorney didn't do their job and they just sort of went along with it too, assuming the guy was guilty. Um, so, you know, they're not always have the funds to hire these experts in every single case. And many times they're not doing their job. Well, then I can hear people saying, well, wait a second though. The presumption of innocence, right? I mean, the burden is on the prosecution. So doesn't that sort of at least, if not stack the deck in favor of the defendant, at least even things out then? Well, I mean, the presumption of innocence is, is a nice phrase. <laughs> um, you know, when I was a prosecutor, I went against this defense attorney. It would start off his opening statements in front of the jury like this. He'd say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, when you walked out here, you looked up and you saw somebody sitting up on the bench with a robe and you thought to yourself, that's the judge. And you looked over there and you saw somebody in a suit sitting next to another guy in a, in a detective's uniform and you thought to yourself, well, that's the detective on the case and that's the prosecutor. You looked over at me in a suit and you looked at the guy next to me and you said to yourself, when you looked at the guy next to me, you said, that's the guy who did it. Huh. And the jury yeah. would start laughing. He'd say, gotcha, right? Because you did that. I mean, most of the time jurors think, why would we come to this stage of the case and why would the police and prosecutors be wasting their time on somebody who's innocent um and so we tell them to presume the person's innocent but studies show that the way that plays out in the courtroom is not really true um most people come into it assuming the person's guilty okay well how i guess i want to get into the kind of rarity of this because i think the common presumption or the common view is that okay this happens sometimes right somebody screws things up for whatever reasons but honestly, it doesn't happen that often. And, uh, you know, and, and so how big of a deal is it? Well, maybe not so much. And also, you know, you mentioned, well, DNA evidence. Well, our, our technology is so much better these days. So sure, if you go back into the bad old days before all these reforms, but now, now we're, a lot, we're a lot better and this really isn't, 
this is kind of a problem that's going away on its own. Well, what do you respond to that? Uh, well, two things. First of all, um, if I get off this phone call and I walk, I walk outside my building and somebody um, shoots me and runs away and I lay there and die on the sidewalk, there's no DNA to test. You know, it's not like the perpetrator. Uh, I struggled right. with the perpetrator and I got cells under my fingernails or it's a rape case with their semen. About 95% of the cases, there's no DNA to test. So yeah, if there was DNA in every case and the perpetrator left DNA in every case, it would make things a lot easier, but that's a myth. I mean, that's a, a rarity. Somebody's lucky enough to have DNA in their case. Um, secondly, I mean, it's impossible to determine the exact number. Some experts have, you know, suggested 4%. I don't know if that's true or not of people who are in prison are actually innocent. I, it's impossible to know, but what I can tell you is we've identified over 2,300, um, the innocence project have it. And if you do this work, you realize that every single one of those people was incredibly lucky. It's like fluke after fluke after fluke has to happen for you to still have the evidence even to test. I mean, 75% of the time in DNA t- cases where you go back and you say, hey, prosecutor, we'd like to test this DNA from this case 20 years ago. It's a rape case. And we can tell from the record that semen was collected at the hospital. 75% of the time they've lost it or haven't preserved it. Wow. You know, so um, it, it, you know, and so the case ends and you think, well, this guy might be innocent. Well, there's nothing we can do. You know, like we exonerated Ricky Jackson when witnesses came forward. He was in prison for almost 40 years for murder. He didn't commit, including death row. The state of, of Ohio has recognized him as innocent and compensated him. And, you know, it all hinged on witnesses much later coming out and saying, you know, I lied. Um, these people were old by this time. What if the key witness had died? What if yeah. he'd been run over by a truck? He'd be still sitting in prison. And so for, you know, and, and this person decided to come forward and come clean and say, I, I framed somebody years ago. A lot of times they don't decide to come clean. So for every single one of these, you can say, if not for this lucky event, if not for that lucky event, this person never would have been prosecuted and I mean, never would have been um, exonerated. And, you know, we run into these cases all the time where it looks like they very well could be innocent, uh, but the key witnesses are dead. The key witnesses, the key evidence is lost, et cetera, et cetera. So we know it's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask, you mentioned witnesses. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, I guess there are, uh, we've learned a lot, right, about with the reliability of witness testimony and putting aside witnesses who want to uh, help the police, I guess you could say, but even people who are well-intentioned and aren't trying to, uh, aren't trying to lie, uh, their, their testimony oftentimes isn't necessarily as clear cut as even they think it is. Right. Eyewitness identification is a leading cause of wrongful conviction and a misidentification is present in 75% of the wrongful conviction cases. And what we now understand is that human memory is extremely malleable, and it's not what we typically think of. So we also understand that the, the, the mind doesn't really record everything. Um, and particularly like in a case where, you know, there's a gun pointed at you, um, it's a rape case or something like that. What happens is the mind focuses all its energy on the gun because you're looking to see if that trigger is getting ready to be pulled and it's getting ready to point at you again, and you're just obsessed with that gun. And anybody would be, of course, right? Um, and when that happens, we now understand that the mind isn't really recording other things around you accurately. Um, and it often fills, you have stock images in your mind for basically everything. And the, and the, the mind does you a favor in not re- forcing you to memorize all that. So it fills in a lot of the other things around you when you're focused on one thing in particular with sort of your assumptions or stock photos or mixes past memories. And so, you know, by the time you're asked later to identify the guy's face, even if you looked at it for a while, um, your mental energies weren't on the face at the time. Many times that can be an error. 
Um, furthermore, like human memory is extremely suggestible. So there's all kinds of experiments where, you know, the, the, they have a fake crime being committed by somebody with no facial hair. Um, and then they interview the witnesses afterwards and, and they, there's a suggestion somewhere, like they first read a report where it's described the guy's having a mustache, a very thick mustache. And then they're asked, you know, did your guy have a, a mustache that, that robbed you? And they say, yeah. Um, but he didn't. They picked mm, that up right. and sort of, you know, from the suggestion in the report they read, and now they actually believe that. Um, and we now understand very clearly how human memory works. I mean, we're eventually going to get to the point where, you know, today when there's a crime scene, everybody knows the police come and they use yellow tape and they tape it off so that nobody can go into the crime scene and contaminate it, you know, drop hairs or DNA or other things. And human memory has to be treated the same way. And when witnesses see something to a crime, you have to extract the information very carefully to make it as accurate as possible. Um, we have to treat it like a crime scene so we don't contaminate it. We're not there yet, though. And so, so the problem, right, is that the people who are extracting the information are people who already have that preset bias. They want a certain outcome, essentially. And so as long as you have that, that's going to be a big stumbling block, basically, it seems to me. Exactly. And they're not intentionally trying to bend yeah. testimony, but the information about the crime leaks out or, or the witness sees the suspect on TV. After they see the person the police arrested on TV, um, that's not a very reliable identification because everybody thinks, well, okay, that guy did it. Even subconsciously, your memory is changing. Many times, you know, it's later when they unwind or unpackage your wrongful conviction case and they realize the guy who actually did it, you know, they do DNA testing. He doesn't even look that much like the, the person who was charged and who the witness identified at trial. They realize I must have gotten that image in my head from seeing the news clip today before the police came and talked to me. So can you talk a little bit about the specifics about how this all actually works? So there are, there are obviously plenty of people in prison right now who've been wrongfully convicted. So how do you go about, you know, identifying them? Obviously, your resources are not what you would like them to be, I'm sure. And so you have to pick and choose. I mean, what's, what's the, can you kind of walk us through the process here? Sure. So we've had over 9,000 inmates write us since we started in 2003. And we've only gone forward saying we think this person's innocent like less than 40 times. I mean, we are extremely selective. Um, but many of those cases, they might be innocent, but the evidence has been destroyed or they're not getting the lucky breaks. You know, we can't track down the witnesses, things like that. Um, and so if they write to us, I mean, obviously a lot of them are guilty. So you can do a little bit of investigation and realize pretty quickly that this was a correct conviction and the guy's just lying to us. And that's just part of the cost of doing business, right? Um, and so it just, a matter of sometimes you start investigating the case and everything the person in prison has been telling you keeps being true. And you keep going, huh, this seems to be getting a better and better case. Um, and those are the ones that sort of stay on the conveyor belt late longer. They don't fall off but the rest of them. One reason or another, they sort of fall off the conveyor belt. Uh, we either confirm they're guilty or the witnesses are dead or the DNA has been destroyed. But um, a small percentage of them after a year or two of investigation, you go, wow, this guy looks like he's innocent. And, you know, I, I think some people would say, well, wait a second, isn't that what the appeals process is supposed to be for? I mean, what, what happens to the system or why, why doesn't the system kind of have this built in? I think a lot of people assume it does have this. Oh yeah, built totally in. not the case at all. I mean, the appellate process is looking for legal errors that occurred in the trial. So, you know, um, if the jury charge from the judge was wrong or the judge admitted some evidence that shouldn't have been admitted, they're looking for specific legal errors. They're not going up on, on appeal and looking at the case fresh with open eyes like the jury did. 
know, the only time you get that factual determination is made by the jury. So if there's a, a bad forensics or a bad eyewitness identification, when it goes up on appeal, the court, appellate court has to assume the facts in the, in, a, in the way most favorable to the prosecution. So they have to take that eyewitness identification testimony and assume it's accurate. They have to take the forensics and assume it's accurate. They're not looking into those questions. Um, so by definition, the appellate court is looking for legal errors. They're not reevaluating the sort of things that, that result in wrongful conviction. And, and so what happens when you take a case forward? I mean, what's the, what sort of cooperation, what sort of response do you get from people when you say, hey, I, I think this was a miscarriage of justice? I mean, how do they react? Well, that was sort of the biggest shock in a way for me when I started doing this work. Uh, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, though, because of how my mentality was as a prosecutor. But, you know, so it caused me to, to, to really reflect a bit. <clears throat> but, you know, um, one of our first cases was Clarence Elkins, and we had ironclad DNA evidence that he was innocent. Um, and we eventually identified the true perpetrator and matched his DNA. And it was just shocking that the prosecutors refused to admit that they made a mistake. We eventually had to go to Attorney General Jim Petro. Jim Petro was Attorney General of Ohio at the time and explain this to him. And, you know, he wasn't the prosecutor on the case and he wasn't involved in it. He could be a little more objective. Um, and he had to use his bully pulpit to sort of force the prosecutors in, in Akron to do the right thing. And it took a long time. And I think if, without Jim Petro, Clarence Elkins might still be in prison. Um, and so one of the things that I've noticed is this sort of deep denial that, and it's just human nature. Yeah. You know, if you have put all this time and effort into a case and, you know, the prosecutor in that case had the front page when he convicted Clarence Elkins framed on his wall, that was his trophy. Um, you know, your sense of identity and your self-worth comes from the, the great work you've done in this office. And like any human being, you come back to that person later and say, hey, not only did you get it wrong, but because you identified the wrong person, we've identified the real perpetrator. and He committed three rapes of little girls. In the meantime, because you let him go, right. that's very hard for somebody to accept. Yeah. Um, now, this is not universally the case. We have some prosecutor's offices in Ohio that are easy to work with, and they've uh, been very open-minded and, uh, and cooperated. Uh, Columbus, Franklin County, Ron O'Brien's always been like that. More recently, Cleveland, Cuyahoga County. But um, so it's it's a mix. But uh, many times the prosecutors simply just dig in and take these unreasonable positions because either they don't want to admit the mistakes been made or they're simply unable to psychologically accept it. Yeah. So would that mean that in in some instances it's easier in a way when it's an older case when different prosecutors were the people responsible? You would think, but no. Usually oh. they're protecting their entire office. So you know, we've had many instances where you know, the prosecutor who prosecuted the case 25 years ago has now left the office or even dead. And we, it's like the offices typically have cultures. Right. They're either been trained to be open-minded and receptive to these sorts of things like they are in Columbus and, and, and more recently Cleveland, um, or there's just no training whatsoever. And so they take this sort of knee-jerk reaction that human beings typically take when they're told you made the terrible mistake. And they go in to stick my head in the sand um, and try to explain everything away. I mean, I, if you want to give an example, I can. I can. Yeah. You know, the Clarence Elkins case, it was a home invasion in the middle of the night. And a grandmother was raped and murdered. And the little granddaughter was spending the night. She was six years old. Um, and she heard the commotion and stuck her head out the door. The perpetrator saw her and then raped and tried to kill her, uh, left her for dead. Unfortunately, she survived. And then she saw the attacker for only a few seconds in the dark before she was knocked unconscious. And she identified him as her uncle Clarence. Um, and everything was based on this testimony of the six-year-old girl. Now, he had a solid alibi. Uh, his wife at the time said, you know, he was with me, but they just sort of spun it at trial. Like, don't believe her. She's protecting her husband, even though that was her mom that was murdered. Um, 
So we did DNA testing after he spent years in prison, and we found ma- male DNA inside the grandma's vaginal cavity. She was not sexually active, um, so that's the perpetrator's DNA. It did not match Clarence Elkins. We then found male DNA on the little girl's panties that did not match Clarence Elkins. And it was the same man. So the DNA profile on the grandmother matched the DNA profile on the little girl. And there's only one man who would put his DNA in those two places on the night of the murder, and that's the perpetrator. And it wasn't Clarence Elkins. Um, And, you know, they came up with these ridiculous theories to avoid that they had made a mistake. They said, like, well, maybe the grandmother uh, came into contact with some man early on the day she was murdered and had some, you know, shook hands with him and stuff and got uh, his DNA all over her hands. And then she, you know, touched herself on her vagina or masturbated or something, wow. and rubbed it off inside. Um, and he's just like, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, that doesn't even scientifically like make sense that you would even get a DNA result like that. And that doesn't even explain how that same man's DNA got on a little girl's grand- uh, panty. You know, and it's just, and they're standing up arguing these things in court. I'm sitting there like, are you, you know, this is the lengths the human mind will go to, yeah. to avoid admitting a mistake. Wow. Do you think with, I mean, because you mentioned there are innocence project, not just in Ohio, but, but across the country now, and they've, they've gotten a, you know, a fair amount of, I think, uh, notoriety. And I'm wondering, do you think that that is helping to change some of these cultures for the better? Is that, is that your sense or? Yeah, it's slow. Um, but yes. And so I am, for example, later this month going to New York to speak to a national prosecutors conference of a group of prosecutors who are wanting to change things and want to do the proper training. Um, and they're, you know, they, they're all reading my book as, um, as a book club. And then I'm doing a reception and a book talk. Um, and you know, the prosecutor in Philadelphia ran on a platform of trying to change this culture and specifically enroll convictions and got elected. Um, and, you know, so you're starting to see, and we were seeing some prosecutors offices in Ohio start to change as well. It's still slow. Um, and there's still many who are resistant and that they don't want to change. Um, but it's like any civil rights movement. I mean, this is going to take decades. And I think it's, this movement is not just about getting innocent people out of prison, but it's about government openness. It's about understanding our human weaknesses. It's about how people with power, like prosecutors and police officers, need to be aware of their fallibilities and open to admitting they made mistakes. Um, so these are cultural changes that will take a long time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what happens, let you, you successfully uh, free somebody who's been wrongfully convicted. I mean, what happens at that point? Is it just like they, the state just says, oh, sorry, our bad? Uh, or, I mean, what happens to these people who might have spent decades of their lives <clears throat> wrongfully convicted? Do they have any sort of legal recourse or compensation or is it just like that's just too bad buddy well first of all they all suffer from ptsd well sure yeah and so um you know if you did something you went to prison your mind can understand that um when your world is rocked by being sent to prison for 30 years for something you didn't do that's very hard to cope with and so they're they're dealing with what's happened to their life the changes once they get out all that they've missed the fact that they don't have close relationships anymore and they've lost touch with everyone. It's very hard. It's just like, it's like you're being put on a foreign planet <clears throat> and now you've got to learn how to live again. So they're dealing with that. There's a compensation statute in Ohio and most states have them now. Um, we amended it last year to make it easier, to make it broader for more people who are wrongfully convicted to get compensation. Um, so, you know, not all of them get it. Some of them do. Um, you know, one of the things that's problematic is that, in some of our cases, when we've developed evidence of innocence and it's 
looks like we're going to win. Um, there's no guarantee we're going to win, though. Uh, prosecutors will come and offer a deal. Right. If you plead guilty and say you did it, we'll let you go today. If you've been sitting in prison for 30 years yeah. and you're rolling the dice, you don't, you've got strong evidence of innocence, but you've seen other people with strong ev- evidence where the judges are sort of in line with the prosecution and don't let them out. It's a gamble. And so we've had a couple of our clients take those deals. And so they can't get compensation. Um, so it's wow. not like a, a universal uh, panacea. Yeah. So what can we do? I mean, what, in terms of policies, <laughs> what do you think would be the most important things we could do to, first off, to change the system to actually decrease the number of wrongful convictions? I mean, you talked about culture, and obviously that's a, a long, slow sort of thing. But is there, is there, are there other things that could be implemented that might make this less common going forward, do you think? If I could change one thing, and this is the hardest, I would not make prosecutors and judges elected. Uh, because the public doesn't always get the nuance, and right. they've, prosecutors and judges have learned that you've got to act tough on crime. They're worried about ever being perceived as soft on crime, and so it helps them develop this reflex of just sort of being a hard ass all the time, um, which I think is very detrimental. We're not getting objective, neutral, philosopher king type people who are sitting back and taking the ego out of it, trying to just make the most just decision. Where you know they're trained to sort of react in this reflective hard ass posture at all right. times, which is very detrimental. Um, but I mean, eyewitness identification, there's very easy things that can be done to make it more reliable. I mean, I can go into a lot of the details, but, you know, for example, the officer who shows the six photos to the witness shouldn't know which one is the suspect. Ah, okay. Um, you know, and, and study after study showed that even if they're not trying to give hints, invariably you do, you, you breathe differently when they stop and let's start looking at number two, if that's the guy. Um, you know, as a prosecutor, I had a case where we were really nervous about whether she was going to pick the right guy. We'd worked really hard on the case and she picked the right person. And we, me and the detective jumped up and down and did touchdown dances and high-fived each other. We now know that when you do that, um, the person may have only been 60% sure, but even without them knowing it, their confidence has been inflated and they're going to go to trial and testify they're 100% sure. So there's, that's just one example of of making sure that the person who's doing the, the photo spread doesn't know the right answer. Um, you know, in forensic confirmation bias, making sure that the experts not told the right answer before they start. You know, there's some very simple things um, that can take some of the human bias out of the equation. It sounds like, I mean, from that description, it sounded to me like you're you're talking about sort of a variant of sort of a, a double blind experiment, basically, exactly. which we do in a lot of other areas, obviously. We do in every, I mean, what's amazing to me is double blind is a basic function of the of the scientific method. If, if, if Pepsi went to the mall and did a Pepsi versus Coke taste test, and and came out with a thing that people prefer Pepsi and, and people realized later that the person doing the study wasn't double blinded. So they know, they knew which cup had Pepsi. We would say that's not a valid experiment. And everybody would recognize that in the scientific community, but in the criminal justice system, we're sending people to death row based on essentially experiments, like which one of the six people is the right photo and which fingerprint matches. We're not following the scientific method. We're not doing anything to remove the inherent human biases, the ways that we influence each other, even in subconscious ways. Um, and this would be laughed at in other fields. And, and when the stakes are so high, it, it, it's, it's not just laughable, it's tragic, really. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, what about the other end of things? I mean, are there any changes that would make it easier to free the wrongfully convicted? Well, um, getting access to records. I mean, one of the things is that you know, somebody writes this, they've been in prison for 30 years. 
uh, um, the first thing we do is we try to collect the police files, the prosecutor files, do public records requests, and um, many times we get sandbags. So, you know, they won't turn them over and, you know, it makes it impossible to really investigate. We can't even find out if there was DNA collected at the crime scene because they won't turn over the records. So unfortunately, a lot of our time is spent just fighting that sort of people just not wanting their work to be looked at. And, you know, even when we go in for DNA testing, you know, we'll have a guy write to us and say, I was convicted of rape 20 years ago. And, and, and they, at my trial, I remember talking about how they collected semen, but there was no DNA testing at the time. You know, it hadn't been invented yet. We'll go to the prosecutors and we'll go, hey, can we test that DNA? We'll pay for it. No. Um, and so there's cases where we spent years and years in court wasting judicial resources and everybody else's time. Um, and then we test it and the person sometimes is innocent. And it's like, you know, why are we yeah. spending all this time just fighting for information? All it is is information. I mean, if, you, if you're so confident your conviction's right, let us test the DNA. So is that a matter of laws needing to be changed or simple? Or actually, are the laws there that give you access, but it's just foot dragging by, by the folks involved? Right. The laws are there. But anytime there's a law, they can say, well, we don't think you qualify. So it forces you into right. litigating it. And there's many where we've litigated for years and then we won. And, you know, there's cases where we litigated for years and then the DNA came back and proved the guy's guilty. Right. And it's like, great. Yeah, we we right don't want person. the system to have made mistakes. Yeah. We want it to have the right result. Why did you waste all this taxpayer money forcing all this litigation for years? We said we'd pay for the DNA testing years ago. We could have confirmed he was guilty. The, 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 the victim deserves to shut this guy up as soon as possible. Yeah. But they've had this hanging over their head for five years because you dragged it out. Because yeah. I think a lot of people would assume, well, once you once you identify somebody, it's just a matter of you make the records and the evidence request, and uh, a couple of weeks later, you get it, and that's bing, bang, boom. And that's just totally not it, obviously. Well, it is in the counties that are cooperative, like Columbus. Okay. Um, but yeah, in a lot of places, or most places, it's not like that. So I, I would guess that resources, it, that's, that's got to be a big, a big issue. You mentioned uh, uh, like uh, 40 cases you'd taken up, but I, I would guess that if you had the resources, you could do a lot more. Is that really right now kind of the big issue you would say? Not, probably not just for Ohio, but uh, across the country? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are nonprofits doing this important work. And a lot of times, innocence projects are like one person who's barely getting paid. And, you know, um, so yeah, we're everybody struggling. Uh, it's not part of the system. Like the prosecutor's office yeah. were funded by the state. So I spend a lot of my time now fundraising and just trying yeah. to keep our doors open. I mean, I was actually going to say, and I can hear some listeners going to freak out when I say this, but it seems to me that to make things a little more, uh, it's a little fairer, you, you almost would want to see state-funded innocence projects to kind of correct for this. I mean, is that, is that so crazy? I don't know. I mean, in the climate we've been operating since we started, I mean, the states don't have budgets for anything. Yeah. I mean, anytime you try to pass a bill that's asking for new money to be allocated somewhere, it's dead in the water. Uh, so, I mean, it's maybe in the 60s or something, it would have been different, but... Um, yeah. You know, like I work at a state university and the state's cutting funding. I mean, there's hardly any funding going to state universities anymore. So um, yeah. it's just not realistic in this political environment. Yeah. And even at the federal level, I mean, it's been it's been impossible to get even some really basic criminal justice system reform. So something like this, I'm sure, would be a bridge way, way too yeah. far, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, what what about I'm sure listeners you know, have heard this say, well, I'd, I'd like to help out. Uh, what advice do you have for folks who want to 
help you, you know, in the other instance projects in other states with this work? What can they do to get involved and, and, and to help out with things? Well, I mean, like for, for Ohio example, the first thing they do is follow us on Facebook. And we have different events and fundraisers. And, you know, we, every, every October, the first Sunday in October, we have a 5K that you can walk with one of our exonerees and you can get a team together, your church or your, your company and help raise money. Um, but, you know, coming to our events and, and going on Facebook and spreading the word, these are things you can do. Um, and regardless of what state you're in, you can follow the Innocence Project there, um, start participating in their events and their fundraisers and, you know, sharing their stuff on social media and spreading the word. Those are easy ways. And, and certainly just, yeah, give, giving giving of your own money because you point out they're, they're nonprofits. And so, you know, maybe get that deduction and so forth. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, a, lo- a lot of ways to help out. Well, uh, you are you're doing great work and I'm glad you're there doing it and I'm I'm really glad we had a a chance to to talk. Thanks thanks so much for uh, taking the time to, out of your day to to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thanks for helping me spread the word. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each week deep dive policy shows, and more. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps out, as does sharing episodes, which is easy to do right there in your podcast app. Word of mouth is absolutely the best advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're using, that helps out a lot as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just something random you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.